0: stand for the reading of God's word. You are beautiful as Tisra, my love, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. All of them bear twins. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, pure to her, who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her her blessed the queens and concubines also and they praised her who is this who looks down like the dawn beautiful as the moon bright as the sun awesome as an army with banners i went down to the orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded before i was aware my desire set me among the chariots of kinsmen a prince return return Shulam shulamite that we may look upon you why should you look upon the Shulamite? How beautiful are your feet in sandals. Your thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses in the tresses how beautiful and present pleasant you are O loved one with all your delights your stature is like a palm tree i say i will climb the pl- palm tree oh may the scent of your breath be like apples and your mouth like the best wine i am my beloved's and his desire is for me come my beloved let us go out into the fields let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded there i will give you my love the mandrakes give Fourth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, which I have laid up for you. O oh, my beloved, O oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my brother, my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. I would give you spiced wine to drink. His left hand is under my head, and his he- and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Lexi. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, um, in reverence, knowing, Lord, that this is your word, that you spoke to us, God, that you're real, that you're not fake, um, that you created us in your image. Um, that you prove to us who you are and that this is your word by resurrecting your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that this is not a wishful guess um, or or a hope um, that is unfounded, Um, but God, we have the evidence of Christ's resurrection pointing to the fact, Lord, that we can trust your word, that we can trust you. So God, we ask, Lord, that this morning we would come to you in reverence and faith, believe what you say and not reject it, um, but follow it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it's so good to be here this morning with you all. I know that some of you might be new to this series, but we've been going through what's um, known as wisdom literature of the Old Testament in the Bible, um, which is an extended, in the Song of Solomon, is an extended love poem between a couple, a man and a woman. And we've been enjoying learning a little bit about Christ's love for us, about what marriage is, um, what sexual union is, and um, hopefully we've all been encouraged by these sermons, which I think we're about five deep into now. Uh, in our Western culture, I, I'm sure some of you might be aware, but it's be- become common for married people, um, perhaps after some length of time or for other reasons, uh, entirely to do something called a vow renewal. Has anyone ever been to a vow renewal or seen one or heard of it at least? Okay, we got, we, you guys at least know what I'm referring to. I've, I've officiated, I've been a pastor since 2005, so 14 years. So I've officiated a few of these vow renewals over um, my time being a pastor. And on one occasion, um, there are different reasons why people do this. On one occasion, the couple got married in a very small environment, just with maybe one or two people present. Obviously, a pastor was present, did the ceremony. Then later on, month or two later, they wanted more of a celebration. They wanted to invite family and friends and have a big celebration, so they did their vow renewal. Another one I actually did for my mother and my stepdad, who you probably were greeted at the door by. Um, They were celebrating 25 years of marriage, and I feel like, what was that, a few years ago now um, that we did that, Um, and what a great celebration that was. Some of you, I think, were probably even there Um, So I've done these things a few times in my life. Perhaps you're married, you've been married for a while, and you're considering doing one yourself. They're a lovely occasion. Uh, Purpose is important to why we do anything, right? There's always a reason. There's a reason we get married, and there's a reason we do vow renewals if we ever do one ourselves. Um, we, We need to have a clear reason for our actions. And friends, if we don't fully understand what marriage is, to begin with we we end up sort of defining it for ourselves how culture defines it so we get married based on some kind of vague definition that we have um, that that's been handed down to us by parents or grandparents or society so whatever is defining marriage for us no doubt is defining what a vow renewal is as well so it's important the way that we define things and the way that we understand things whatever our definitions uh, might be they would define a renewal ceremony if we ever participated in one. Did you know that vow renewals are not a foreign concept in scripture either? So sometimes we do things and we kind of make it up and we enjoy it, right? But, but there are things actually we do as Christians because they're in the Bible. The Bible instructs us to do them, like baptism, baptism. Um, we, we take the Lord's Supper. There are various things that we do as a church because the Bible instructs us to do these things. Well, actually, vow renewals are something that we find in Scripture. They're not just a cultural creation. <clears throat> we see them in Joshua in the Old Testament, chapter 8. We see, it, we see it again in Joshua, chapter 24. We see one in the book of Nehemiah, right? Um, we might accurately, more accurately, call these covenant renewals. Right or covenant reminders, covenant recommitments. Basically, these were ceremonies that were performed to remind Israel that they were in a covenant relationship with God, that God had made a promise to them to be their God and that he would be their people, and that covenant came with blessing and cursing. Cursing if they broke the covenant, blessing if they kept it. So what we see happening sometimes in the Old Testament is a renewal of sorts, of Israel reminding itself after maybe they had forgotten about or neglected these covenant vows to renew them again, to remind themselves of of them again. So we see in Joshua 8, 24, Nehemiah, a rehearsal of the Mosaic covenant, a reminder of the promise of God to Israel. So they would literally read the first five books of the Bible out loud to the mass of Israel. Imagine if we just sat here together this morning and I just read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Most of you would leave by Genesis chapter 4, right? Maybe myself included. Unless you are desperate for God. Unless you realize that your main problem in life was not money or food or famine, But it was a famine of God's word. It was a famine of God's love, of God's presence. And if you finally found out he's speaking to us, how many people would leave the room then? I don't think any of us would. So vow renewals are not a a foreign concept in scripture. In our text that we read this morning, it would seem at least on the surface that we might simply reduce what we just read to a lover's feud having resolved itself reconciliation after a fight, mutual repentance and reconciliation. And if this is your first maybe introduction to the series, the chapter prior, these two were not so happy with each other. They were fighting. They're, They're newlyweds that got into a fight. But now here, they're speaking affectionate words to each other, leading ultimately to sexual union again, just as on their married night. So it gives us, it's, this passage certainly gives us insight into the dynamics of kind of like marital conflict and how to resolve them, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, but there's more going on here than simply making up with your wife or your husband. We can observe a progression in this particular married couple's resolution, how they resolved their conflict, and we can see that progression in three categories. We'll call them body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. Okay? There was an injury in their relationship, and what we see is an address to the body, soul, and spirit. That spirit speaks to the heart resolution, the deeper thing that's going on internally and spiritually that's more than just about them in their relationship. And we'll get to that at the end. So it's equally important while we observe this kind of makeup between two fighting people in a marriage, what's equally important is observing that how, how these dynamics are also present in anyone who wants to have a relationship with God through Christ. Because, because in Scripture, the Bible often, frequently compares marriage, human marriage, to our relationship with God through Christ. So what we learn about marriage, we can learn about us and God. And that's ultimately, I think, the message here. And by the end of our talk, Hopefully you will have some more insight into this. But let me give you a little background. Like I said, you might be new, this might be your first time. The Song of Solomon is an Old Testament book, like I said. It's poetry, it's love poetry, but it begins with two people desperately in love with each other. We could call these teenagers in love. Quite literally, they probably were teenagers in love. Oftentimes in the ancient Near East, young people would be married by 15, 16, 17 years old. Imagine The horror, if your 15-year-old came up to you and said, Dad, I'm in love with a boy in the 10th grade, and we're going to get married next week. No, it ain't happening, right? Good dad's going to walk in break this thing up quick. You're not even allowed to see him, let alone marry him. That's what we would do. But back then, it wasn't so much the case. So these two teenagers, madly in love with each other, um, we see their love story unfold in the early chapters of the Song of Solomon. We see their emotionally intimate communication. By the way, isn't it interesting, I don't have this in my notes, but isn't it interesting that as 30-something-year-olds, 40-something-year-olds, 50-something-year-olds, we're learning healthy marriage, um, we're getting healthy marriage instruction from two teenagers. Right? That goes to tell you something, that teenagers can be wise beyond their years and that adults can be pretty daffy. We need to learn from God's word. We need to learn what he speaks, what he teaches to us, no matter what mouth it comes from. You know that the Bible spoke to us through a donkey at one point in Scripture? I'm, not, I'm sorry, teenagers, I'm not comparing you to donkeys. I'm just saying that it doesn't matter what God uses to speak to us, whether they be brilliants, adults, seniors, or youth. You see, God speaks to us, and he speaks to us in this instance through a, a newlywed couple. So here they are, newly, mar- newly, newly in love, their, their affection for each other is budding, their a- admiration for each other, they have attraction for each other. Again, they're not married yet um, in the early chapters. They're accountable, they're pure. They even say things like, they even, they even write a song about virginity, right? Isn't that wonderful news to our young people today? Write songs about virginity. Let your life be a song of purity until you're married. But they teach us about this. And then finally, we see around chapters 4 and 5, they get married. There's the wedding ceremony. And the the curtain sort of closes as they consummate their wedding vows on their marriage night. But soon after, like in most weddings and most marriages, perhaps maybe even on their honeymoon itself, they get into a fight. Now, if you're married this morning or have been married, you probably have been in a fight or two. I'm just guessing, okay? Some kind of conflict. And I know that we all fight differently, right? Like, depending on your family of origin or who you are, your personality, some people are very loud about what they're feeling inside, right? Very vocal about it, very immediate, very very um, intentionally clear about what it is that you did wrong, right? Others of us like to just never say a word and internally we boil and fester, and we get angry. And a month will go by, and then all of a sudden, a cup flies across the room, <laughs> right? You see, we all have different conflict styles, don't we? But here, they're in a conflict. They're in a fight. He comes knocking at the door. She rejects him. He keeps knocking. She finally turns over, gets up, puts her slipper on, slippers on, goes to the door, but finds that out of spite, he was sick of waiting, he takes off into the night. So she decides to do the right thing at that point. And this was last week's sermon. She, she puts on her clothes. She runs outside into the dangerous night, takes on his darkness, and finds him. And then when she finds him, she speaks affectionate words to him. We actually see last week them closing, what the implication is leading to their, again, their marital union, their sexual union in marriage. Their longing to be with each other again. So there she speaks... But this week, it's the groom's turn. We don't really hear much um, about what they did wrong, apologizing to each other, I did X, Y, or Z, and I'm sorry. That's sort of assumed in the text. What we have is their positive affirmation of the other. The groom speaks, and what's happening is the making right of what's been made wrong. You see, an injury has happened in their relationship as a married couple. And the words he speaks is addressing that injury. It's speaking life into it. It's speaking healing into it. You see, as men, sometimes we just like to show up with flowers and not talk about it. Don't we? Because we have an ego. We don't like to rehearse the things that we did wrong. We just want to pretend that we didn't do anything wrong. Right? Here's some flowers. I'm sorry. Isn't that enough? Right? We don't have to talk about this. Right? Right? That's what we do. But not this man. This man starts to speak, and he provides a model for us, and a model for, for making right what has been made wrong. You know, in the Greek, they have this, world, this word that we translate, um, justify. We see it a lot in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ justified God's people with himself, with God. That is, he made us right with him. There was something wrong in our relationship with God. We were cut off. We were separate. So now, in Christ, he's making us right. But what's happening here is that the groom and the bride are making right what went wrong. Now, here's a brilliant principle that you can apply right away. When something goes wrong in marriage, make it right. Don't just think that it will heal by itself. You need to actively make it right. You need to do something. You see, God didn't make his church right simply by just sitting on his throne in heaven. He sent his son to die for us. He speaks to us to have repentance and faith. There's action, there's work, there's pursuit in our being reconciled to God. And it's the same thing with each other in marriage. And by the way, this isn't just marriage, this is any relationship, this is friendship, if we're going to make right something that, we may, that has been made wrong, if we're justifying we need to pursue the other. Did you know that all people, all human beings, were created by God according to Scripture, body, soul, and spirit? There are three parts to us. They, they're different parts, but they're connected. You can't separate one from the other. Body, soul, and spirit, we have three parts. And if marriage, again, according to Scripture, is the, is the union of body, soul, and spirit, of one man to one woman, two people becoming one, then that means an injury will injure, in the, in the marriage, an injury in the marriage will injure the body, the soul, and the spirit. And not only will it injure your spouse's body, soul, and spirit, it will injure your own you say well they're the one that drew first blood they're the one that's in the wrong right but they're in like you and you think that because of that you're the one that got injured friends if two are one even if they're in the wrong they're injured too you see if I cut my arm my right arm isn't saying I'm so glad I'm not cut right the whole body sort of grieves and weeps, the fa- regrets the fact that there's an injury made to one part. Does that make sense? So in a marriage, if two are one, to be in conflict, to be separate, brings injury to both. Okay. So there's not only an injury to both, but there is an injury to body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. To justify the conflict, to make right what has gone wrong... We need to address, like this groom does, the soul, the body, and the spirit. The soul, the body, and the spirit. We need to apply healing balm to all three categories. We need to recognize that all three have been influenced and hurt. The body, the soul, and the spirit. So the bridegroom addresses first his bride's, number one, her soul. They don't just have a fight and jump in bed, right? We've got to make this right you know? Follow me. (laughs) That's not what he does. Go try that. It doesn't work. Right? They don't just jump. He needs to speak to her heart first. In marriage, we have to ask each other, do we speak to our spouse's heart? Or are we far? Are we distant from their heart? Do we speak to each other's souls? In this instance, the bridegroom begins to speak after a fight, after conflict, to his bride's soul in verses 4 through 12. He calls her his love. And oh, isn't it important that after, especially after intense conflict in marriage, you need to know that your spouse still loves you, that something hasn't changed. That's the insecurity. That's the thing that immediately comes into your mind. Do they love me still? Has this conflict ruined the relationship or are they still mine? You see, the, the soul is insecure. But he calls her his love. Not only that, he says that she's awesome, like an army with banners. Not only are you good-looking, wife, but you are impressive to observe. Not just physically, but you are like an army with banners. You are powerful. You are incredible to observe, your inner character the kind of person that you are. Remember, she came chasing after him in the middle of the night because they had a fight. The fact that she extended love and grace on this level was like an army with banner to him. It it brought a window into her soul, into her character, and he speaks it out loud to her. He doesn't let her wonder if if he really thinks this about her. He doesn't leave her guessing about how he feels about her. Or what he sees in her. He says it to her. There are 60 queens. And 80 concubines. Now it might. In verses 5 through 7. We read a little bit about this. But let me just remind you. He starts kind of talking about her physical appearance. He does that later on in the text too. But he does this in verses 5 through 7. And we might say like. How is this soul stuff? What's he doing now? Why is he speaking about his body. If he's trying. Her body. If he's trying to address her heart. Well, he kind of gives this laundry list of compliments, but then he says in verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines. My dove, my perfect one, she's the only one. In other words, you see, my wife has as a backdrop the queens of the earth, the young women of the world, in all their splendor, pomp, circumstance, power, intelligence, and beauty. And after pouring over all the earth and the sea of women in it, she's the only one. You see, friends, there are no others. I only see her, and this fight has not changed that. You see, do we speak that, as married people, do we speak that in our reconciling process after a conflict in marriage? Our spouse needs to know it. This isn't just for women. This is for men, too. Men need to know it, too. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines. My dove, my perfect one. She's the only one. Pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and Young and old, by the way. So we're not really sure exactly how old they are at this point. Let's imagine that they're 65 or 70. And he's saying, you know, there are a lot of young women in the world, but she's the only one she's younger than all of them right the queens and concubines not only not only is she the only one but all of them praise her they look to her as the one that is lovely and gifted and lucky right so to this man to this bridegroom in spite of this fight all the queens all the concubines all the young all the young women they're not in his sight This same royal harem praises this this woman who is the object, the sole object of his affection. Friends, the soul, especially after conflict, needs to know that it is still cherished, loved, not abandoned. We need to speak it to our spouse. Inside and out, you're still the object of your spouse's admiration and love. You see, you might have been in a marriage where you've tanked at that. Maybe your marriage is over now. And this is hard for you to hear because you're realizing you didn't do these things. Well, friends, I got some good news for you, but you got to wait till the end to hear it. Okay, so just bear with me. The model husband here in our text is demonstrating the kind of things that need to be said to every spouse, man, woman, husband, or wife. He says, who is this that looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome, again, as an army with banners? Who is this? his wife. That's how he sees her. She's like the dawn, the moon, the sun, like an army with banners. You know, it's interesting, something that I observed, I don't know if exactly for sure if the original author of this poem had this in mind, but it's interesting to me that when the the bridegroom sort of pours over all of the the attributes that he admires about his spouse, that he doesn't compare her to another woman. He compares her to inanimate objects of God's creation. It just occurred to me how important that that he, he didn't say, you have legs like Cindy Crawford. <laughs> right? Or, you know, your face is just like Angelina Jolie's. You look like Angelina Jolie. Or your body, whoo, ah, right? Lenny and Squiggy, like Rihanna, right? He doesn't compare any of her physical qualities or her inner or you know, her qualities, like her character, inter- intelligence, or work ethic, to some other industrious or moral woman. He compares her attributes, all of them, to inanimate objects like animals, moons, armies, wheats, all of these different things. He, this is what he does. And I think maybe that it has something to do because he's not, he doesn't want room in his language to let on that he has another woman's standard that she needs to live up to. You see? Because what happens to legs? They get wrinkly. Right? What happens to hair? It falls out. What do you say when her body isn't like Rihanna's anymore? Right? It's like an old Chevy. right? That doesn't work anymore. You see, there's room now in this language for for her to think that what he really wants is Rihanna. If he's comparing me to her and saying, well, you're just as beautiful as her, he doesn't do that. Quite the opposite. He doesn't pit her against other women. He doesn't have another woman as a standard that she has to live up to. Quite the opposite. All the other women are set to her standard. They march to her drumbeat. It's like he's saying, I'm not interested in any of these because they're not you. It speaks to her soul, and we need to speak to each other's soul, especially after conflict. It assures her that despite their fight, no one has replaced her. He speaks soul-healing words to her, and then he starts addressing her body, okay? More fully. This, is, this gets fun, okay? You might think... Um, that this description, as you heard it, and by the way, you might have noticed also that I left some things out in the reading. It's a little bit more spicy if you read it and it's full. But you might think as you kind of read over this that it's just really purely sexual in nature, but it's so much more than that. Do you know, like I said, that if the soul is injured, the body is often injured too. And if the body gets injured, the soul can be injured as well. Some of you might have experienced this in your life. If we lose a job, a marriage ends, an investment tanks, these sort of like ego-bruising and soul-traumatic events can wear on our physical bodies, can't they? They affect our body. We think this is just an internal emotional problem, a soul type of grief, but it starts to affect our body. We can feel aches and pains, fatigue, rapid weight gain or weight loss, insomnia, other sorts of sicknesses. That's when something crushes the soul, our body gets affected, doesn't it? And likewise, reverse it. We're in some kind of debilitating accident, or we get some kind of chronic illness that threatens our life. Oftentimes, our souls can sort of be stirred up to depression or anxiety, deep insecurity and fear. They're connected, aren't they? And he knows this, that this soul injury isn't just a soul injury, it's a body injury, too. The husband's paid attention to his wife's soul and her heart, but now he shifts to caring for her body. He begins to reassure her of his affection and his desire, not just for her soul, but for her whole person. She is not just a soul. She's a soul, body, and spirit. He cares about all three. We saw him compliment, praise her physical features in earlier chapters in his wedding vows. And do you remember where he started? The head, and then he traveled south. But in this one, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, in this one, he doesn't start with the head. He starts with the toes. Did you notice this? He starts with the feet and moves his way up. He says, "How beautiful are your feet?" I don't know that any of us would go there in complimenting the the person that we love. We usually maybe start at the calves. Okay. <laughs> but he likes her feet um, for some reason. How beautiful are your feet? Isn't this interesting? Chance of, and this is the point. Chances are her feet were not as lovely as he's calling them. Feet aren't very nice. I don't know if you've ever gotten a good look at one. But even young feet aren't the most pleasant thing to look at. They kind of smell. They often need grooming. They're often dirty. right? Like So few, feet aren't very often called beautiful. I know we got the weirdos out there, the sickies. They have a little thing about them. But most people don't like feet. Right, like, but that's not the point. The point is he's—he's he's not just praising because they're beautiful. He's praising them because they're hers. You see, they're hers. How beautiful are your feet? Your thighs are a work of the master's hand, and isn't, isn't it wonderful that he's recognizing that she is a creation of God in heaven? That she is first the Lord's before she is his. You see. Your thighs are the work of a master hands. Your navel, your belly, it. Right? And these comparisons might seem odd to us, like wheat. And, but, but wheat is known, is known for its, like, its sustenance, its fertility. Like her belly, she's fruitful, right? So he's, he's not saying your belly looks like wheat. That would be weird. He's saying that you, you will give me offspring. Our love will produce fruit, you see? So he starts pouring over her her belly button her her belly we got to skip a few parts because there are children in the room your neck your eyes your nose your head your locks he starts pouring over them and then verse six he says how beautiful and how pleasant you are O loved one with all your delights your stature is like a palm tree i say i will climb the palm tree now you don't got to be a rocket scientist or maybe better a uh, Shakespeare, poetry type of scholar to read between the lines here. When you climb a tree, it's very one-to-one, isn't it? There's a lot of touching, there's a lot of contact. So imagine for yourselves what he's really talking about here. Oh, may the scent of your breath be like apples. If you smell apples on someone's breath, you're pretty close to their face, okay? So now he's, he's delighting in all that she is, and they're about to do something, okay? Your mouth is like the best wine. The husband is reassuring his wife that after the conflict, she still matters to him. Not just her heart, but her body too. Everything is important to him. They are still a married couple. They are not just friends. She's not just a friend. We can care about a friend's soul, can't we? But we cannot, we, we cannot be entangled with a friend's body unless we're married to them, see? She's, so she's not just a friend whose soul needs healing, and she's not just some sexual fling whose body alone needs to be comforted. She's both. And marriage is broken when either one or both are broken. Now, I get, friends, before I continue, that as we get older, and even because of certain events of life, that sexual expression just changes. It's not the same. So I'm not saying that those marriages are broken, but I am suggesting this, that as old as you get, romantic intimacy is never out of the question. Romantic intimacy is not and should not be off the table. Our spouse is more than just a friend. They're a partner in every way. They're one with us in every way. So he assures her that, he's, that, that she is to him what he promised she would be. And that is a covenant partner. The two are now one. And they prove this. So he speaks to her soul. He speaks to her body. But now the two speak to each other's spirit. They renew each other's vows. And that is, so you all understand very clearly what I'm saying. They renew their vows by making love. You say, well, isn't that the body category? No, it's more, and I'll hopefully explain that. You'll understand it by the end. They renew their vows to each other, their covenant promise to each other by making love. And believe it or not, that addresses their spirit, too. Their body and their soul and their spirit is addressed. Every time... A husband and a wife are intimate. Biblically, they are renewing their wedding vows. Every time, biblically, they are renewing their covenant oath. And it's because of what sexual intimacy is. Sexual union is not just a physical event, and it's not just a soul event. It's not just, hey, this is fun, and it's not just, hey, I really like you or I love you. It's more than that, it's spiritual. Whether you realize it or not, sexual intimacy invokes, please hear this and write this down. Because this is true whether you're married or single. Sexual intimacy invokes God's help and accountability to be one with the other person till death do you part. Did you hear what I just said? If you are not married, these are the implications that when you lie with someone else, you are invoking God's accountability for you to be wed till death do you part. You're invoking God's help, God's union, to be one with this person. Whether you realize it or not, married or not, you invoke God's help and accountability to be one and therefore devoted to each other, body, soul, and spirit. Did you know that in the Old Testament that if A man and a woman had sexual relations before marriage. They were were obligated under Mosaic law to be married. (laughs) Imagine that. If we were still (laughs) under the Mosaic law, a lot of people would be married. Why is that? Well, We'll get to that in a moment. I don't want to give away everything right now. So whether we realize it or not, we invoke God's help to be one with each other, to honor the covenant vows that we took to be with each other so he says in verse 10 I my beloveds his desires for me come my beloved let us go into the fields there I will give you my love you see what's happening now I will give you my love in the Hebrew love um, is oftentimes um, in the Hebrew is a word called hesed and it's a covenant faithfulness I will love you Israel with an everlasting love God says to Israel has said is I love you with a covenant faithfulness because I promised to I pledged to and then it says his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me so they're in a covenant union right now sexually physically these two in conflict they were once separated by the darkness of night remember they got into a fight they separated I'm over here you're over there now and oftentimes in marriage we live like that perpetually we might be in the same house but our heart, soul, and body is over here. Our soul, body, and spirit's over here, and the other ones is over here. We live separately, even though we're in the same house. But they come back together. Even though their souls were separate, their bodies were separate, their spirits were separate. Now they undermine that distance through their vow renewals in sexual union. They say we were once apart. Now we're not. Renew our vows. Because that is what intimacy in marriage is. And that's what it does. It undermines soul, body, and spirit distance. Remember in the Bible, there are a lot of purposes for marriage and for intimacy in marriage. One of them is communication. Another is procreation, having children, right? Companionship, pleasure. These are all fine. But these are like addendums or footnotes to sexual union. Like the frosting on the cake. The cake, the ultimate purpose, is to be a sort of covenant transformation, a reminder that this is, this is the person that's one with me till death do I part body, soul, and spirit. It's a reminder that you've made a promise to them and to God. You would inv- invoke his witness. It's a a vow rehearsal of the fact that you have promised to be one with this person in every way. And because that covenant, in Scripture, covenants are always made in the presence of God as a witness and judge, marital intimacy is always in the presence of God as a witness. Isn't that interesting? If lovemaking is akin, we said this in weeks prior, if lovemaking is akin, it's the same thing as your signature on a contract, that signature on a contract always requires a legal witness. And in marriage, the covenant legal witness is God, and your, and your signature made in his presence is sexual union. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that transform how we've defined it in our culture? It's not just fun, right? It's not just pleasurable. It's so much more than that. And what are the implications of this? How many times have we actually committed adultery? How many times have we divorced the person that we've slept with by making them go home? You see? The, the soul trauma that this causes when it's not done in the confines of marriage. Throughout Scripture, covenantal rituals serve as both the consummation, legal consummation of an oath, a promise, and are meant to be repeated continually as refreshers, as reminders. So when God makes a promise to Israel, one of the covenant signs was circumcision. And and how often did they have to do circumcision? Well, if it was you, obviously only once, right? But every single time a boy was born, they had to be circumcised. There was this constant reminder that Israel was in covenant with God. I have loved you, Israel, with an everlasting love. Right? That they were in a covenant relationship with God. So, when a covenant happened in the Old Testament between man and God, there was a sign, a ritual, a death of an animal or circumcision that needed to be repeated over and over again as a sort of renewal. In the New Testament, we're in covenant with God through Christ. He's made a promise promise to return us to himself through the death and resurrection of Christ. What's the covenant symbol in the New Testament that we're supposed to repeat over and over again? It's communion. The breaking of bread. In marriage, the covenant symbol is sexual union. Do you see the spiritual nature now of this God's creation in marriage? In marriage, we're told, do not deprive each other. In other words... This should be a frequent activity in marriage. Not just done once on your honeymoon. But be fruitful and multiply. Have a quiver full of children. Right? Renew your covenant vows continually so that you don't forget that the spouse you live with is your one. You're one with them. Okay? So the bridegroom in our text demonstrates not some pleasurable impulse... It's not just some kind of makeup thing. He's renewing his vows. He's reassuring reassuring his wife that he is her covenant partner. He's invoking God's witness for them to be one. This faithful husband is reassuring his bride that the conflict has not divided the two of them. He is renewing their vows. He initiates another wedding day. He's saying, I want to marry you again and again, and again, until I'm dead. Right? The soul, body, spirit injury that was the result of their mutual selfishness has been addressed in every way, body, soul, and spirit. Now, let me just challenge you as a church. Let me challenge me as a married person. I need to speak to my wife's soul, body, and spirit. I cannot play video games in the basement and think that my marriage will be healthy. I cannot chop wood or build her a shed and think that that is an adequate demonstration of love. I need to hear her soul. I need to hear her body. I need to hear her spirit, and I need to speak love into it. And then I need to prove it, right? By renewing my vows. That should be every marriage. And friends, here's the truly happy part. That's the way God has designed us to have relationship with him. Such it should be with us and God. So let me close with these few thoughts and then I'll finish. Humanity, all of us, were created to be in a happy covenant marriage with God, a covenant relationship with God where we, our hearts were one with God's heart. But sin has separated you from God, separated all people from God, because we broke the covenants. He created humankind to be one with him. Yet we leave him knocking at the door. We take off into the dark night. What we think we want is a wife or a husband or love or money. But what we're really after is God. And he's knocking and we still continually decide to not respond to that, to that knock. You know that in the Hebrew, the word for covenant is a phrase actually. Karit barit. Karit barit. It means to cut a covenant. Isn't that interesting? To be in covenant with God is to be in a familial, a family-like relationship, a union with God. It's why he made you, and it's why the outside of Christ and outside of union with God, you will always and forever be discontent, never satisfied, never fully satisfied. So God cuts a covenant with us to solve the problem. We're we're in the far country. We're cut off from him because of sin. But God enters into a covenant, into a one-spirit relationship with humanity when he created Adam and Eve, but the covenant was broken. It left them and us and everyone else outside of right relationship with God. Things were wrong, so he made it right. He justified it. So you know what he does? He cuts a covenant with Abraham. He, cuts, he, he instructs Abraham to cut pieces of animal in half. He puts him to sleep, and he promises to reunite his people with himself. In Genesis chapter 12 through 17, he's basically telling Abraham this, that he will bring his be- people back to one relationship with God, even if they break the terms of it, He won't be cut in two because he puts Abraham to sleep and puts him off to the side. And he walks, God walks through these pieces by himself. So he says, Abraham, even if you break the covenant, you won't be cut in two. I will be. I will be cut in two and I'll rescue you and you'll be one with me again. Isn't that great news? Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the animal's cut in two. It's the covenant ratifying oath. It's the signature on God's promise to rescue his people who have trusted in him by faith. Isn't that great news? See, God's signature, the blood of his son, is on the document, not yours. His. That's what it means to be rescued by his grace. He is the one that made the the promise and he is the one that will keep the promise and carry it out to his end. The curse of the broken covenant has been lifted. Galatians chapter 3, we are saved from the curse because he became the curse. He chased after us in the dark night of our separation from him and he found us. And because of Christ, he is now one with us by grace through faith. Isn't that great news? And friends, the only thing that you need to be that you need to do for Christ to be the one dying for you, for you to be included in the promise of rescue in unity with your Maker is to simply say, I do. I do. To answer the door, the no, the, the, the door when He knocks to turn from the sin that you've made against him and to trust him fully. That he wants you back. And that when he comes, he was cut in two so, you, so that you would never have to be cut in two. He was sacrificed so that you wouldn't have to be. He was cut off from the presence of God so that you could be one forever in God's presence. Isn't that great news? He did that for you. As God's people, we continually need to be reminded of this. We need a covenant renewal with God. That's what the Lord's Supper is. What sexual union is to marriage, this might seem weird and creepy, but what sexual union is to marriage, the Lord's Supper, is to the Christian life. It's to the Lord, what it, it is our demonstration to the Lord that we are his and that he is ours. It's why scripture says that only Christians should do it. Because if you're not married to Christ, it would be like sleeping with someone who is not your wife or your husband. See? It's why we're told to be a meaningful part of a local church, to not forsake our gathering together. Because in our, in our membership of God's people, universally and locally, We renew our commitment to God's covenant when we take communion together, like they did in Joshua chapter eight and in chapter twenty-four, Nehemiah. Our instruction in our gathering is to renew our commitments to our covenant with God. And it's a rite that requires the body to be present when it happens and at home, watching it on television. The meal we eat represents the curse. That we deserve, that Christ took, and therefore represents the union that He won for us. You see, the meal we eat, the broken body, the blood it's shed, it's death. But it doesn't just represent the sacrifice, Jesus being cut off. We're eating it; it's becoming one with us, right? That's why we eat it. So now it doesn't just re- represent the 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 discipline, the curse. It also represents the product of God's of Christ's sacrifice that we're now one with God. He's He's in us, and we are in him. Does that make sense? It represents the union. It's the covenant ratifying oath that God says, do this until I come. So the meal we eat represents the curse we deserve, but it also represents the union that he won and that we will always have because he won it. Friends, are you having joy and growth in your life with Christ? Great. Let's renew our vows with Christ today by taking the bread and the cup friend are you a christian but maybe you're in conflict with god maybe he seems far maybe you're angry well friend will you return to him will you repent to him will you speak to him words of affection and then come and be one with him renew your vows with him again remember that he became your curse so that you would never have to be a curse amen let's pray